0: Hello and welcome to Regenerative Rising's podcast, Elevating Stories, Activating Change. I am your host, Nisha Mary Paulos, Executive Director of Regenerative Rising. And with me today is Reginaldo Haslett Moroccan, founder and co director of Regenerative Agriculture Alliance. Reggie is an extraordinary person. His long list of accomplishments include his service as a consultant for the United Nations Development Programmes Bureau for Latin America and as an advisor to the World Council of Indigenous Peoples. He was a founding member of the Fair Trade Federation in 1994 and has headed multiple organizations that are rooted in fair trade and regenerative agriculture systems, not to mention that he holds degrees in agronomy, agricultural economics, and business. He's He's the author of an inspiring book and was awarded the prestigious Lifetime Ashoka Fellowship in 2018. But it is none of that that makes Reggie such a fascinating person. He's a farmer at heart, one that is deeply connected to the earth in multifaceted ways. He holds true to his indigeneity and his ability to think systemically and embrace complexity is incredible. Thank you for joining me today, Reggie. I'm very excited for our conversation.
1: Thank you. This is such an, a great opportunity. And the time zone difference, you all the way out in India and me all the way out here in Northfield, Minnesota. This is makes it even more exciting to think about how easy we can actually have these conversations these days. Absolutely.
0: Like the world is so much of a smaller place, but it's really, really nice to be connected and I'm really excited to also uh, from different parts of the world um learn from you about you know what's different in, in in our in our context you know some of it is shared but some of it is so different but maybe the earth is still the same and it's just a beautiful thought that we can do this from across the world um so you do so much Reggie uh but maybe as a way of a quick introduction could you tell us a little bit more about regenerative agriculture alliance
1: Sure. The um, the Regenerative Agricultural Alliance, or RAA, as we called it for short, um, I founded it in 2018. At the end of the year, we really launched it in 2019. And the purpose of the alliance is to build, manage, develop a ecosystem of enterprises, basically ecosystem an ecosystem management. Uh, organization and uh, is is divided into two main areas: the, the the codification of ancestral indigenous knowledge into applications in for modern conditions of social, economic, and ecological uh, conditions, so that we can redraw the map as to how, as a species, we relate to the to the the rest of nature, uh, considering ourselves nature um, in in the context of that redesign. So everything from about the ecological relationships, and then on the other side of it, codifying ancestral ways as well of governing, uh, structuring ownership and control of the business ecosystems, as, ecosystems that then when brought together with the world that we inhabit gives us the most potentially regenerative outcomes. And that is what we have been doing. Now, in the context of strategic thinking, we couldn't go out there and just do everything, right? And so we, we, you know, based on an understanding of one, the biodynamics of the planet, you know, the 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 foundational ancestral principle that as farmers, we're not really producers of anything, but rather we are stewards of the transformation of energy from non-edible into edible forms, which is governed by the laws of thermodynamics and the biophysics and chemistry of the planet, anywhere in the planet, that, that, that there's no exclusion to those rules and, and laws. And so, so understanding that as a foundation of, of engineering Our relationships with all the other living systems, and then bringing that out into a entry point, a strategic entry point for us. And so, from that perspective, you know there is basically three places on the planet at a mass scale where energy is transformed: photosynthesis, the actions of animals in the landscape, and the soil and the mass, massive, amazing biodiversity of the microbiology and macrobiology of the soil. Those three places is where energy is transformed at a mass scale, most of the energy by the way. And so, and then governed by those laws we're talking about. And so within that those three levels, the animals actually play such a large scale function in the context of energy transformation, to the point that if you actually remove animals from the landscape, the 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 soil and its ability to 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 metabolize nutrients and energy is actually almost stalled, and the same happens to photosynthesis if you if you interfere with that. So that the animal is really the entry point into almost any ecosystem. Of the animals, and, and and I mean, I don't mean it like you have to eat the animals. Uh, that's not the point. The point is just pure science and the scientific understanding of the energy transformation capacity of the planet. And so once we started focusing on animals, we realized that we had to strategically design, engineer a process by which we also um, analyzed every animal and the the social and the economic and the ecological impact of every one of the livestock species that that also present an important economic opportunity for the small farmers in the planet and that's how we landed on chickens. And so um, the chicken gave us that, that strategic entry point with uh, a scale, scale opportunity of, of global proportions. And also more importantly, uh, uh, as we thought about all of this, you know, we also incorporated this thinking that it really isn't the animals, the plants, uh, the soil that is destroying the planet it is actually people. We are degenerating as people. And as we degenerate as people, then we degenerate everything around us, whether it's the soil, the water, the forest, the animals and everything. So for us, the entry point economically and practically needed because we are engaged in energy expressions that we call food, that food needs to come from the ecosystem and so instead of focusing on, uh, I mean, we focused on the, the pieces of the ecosystem that, that we wanted to engage, but at the same time, realized that it is how we engage people that is going to, to change things. And poultry being one of those, those options as a livestock that gave us the most opportunity to engage the most people, but especially the most, the largest number of farmers across the, the the globe, because poultry happens to be compatible with every culture, with almost every diet on the planet, and with every small farmer in the world. So once that was coded into the strategy, then we actually had a social enterprise with a large scale uh, so- social change strategy, and so that's what we do we we're simply codifying all of this information the strategies into plans and strategic processes by which we go day after day and uh, through deciding and redeploying poultry into a regenerative design we are attempting uh, contributing something uh, to healing the planet and our relationships
0: Wow, that's so powerful. there's so many confidence to it and um you know, I mean, uh, um, I really, um, I'm fascinated that you uh, the, the idea of codifying it and, um, and and I guess it relates back to the to the core point here that uh, it's human beings that are causing all of this imbalance and and are trying to reinvent nature in a sense and trying to like find different ways to do these, uh ecosystemic services that are there um by default that nature is abundantly shod on us but then we're trying to like artificially produce that and that um so i'm curious about the codification itself and um how you how you arrived upon that as a strategy the need to codify um and uh break that down
1: into frameworks if that's the right word. Yeah, it totally is uh, the right word. Everything, everything goes into the bucket, so to speak, when you start doing this. And for us, what gave us the the, the hit that in the and the foundational thinking about this was the fact that whenever you look around, just, a few facts for people to understand that that this is not just pull out of thin air if you look at the world there is approximately according to to you know research done by the un and so on there is approximately 700 million farmers that today produce upwards of 70 percent of the food that the world actually consumes and so big big uh, ag doesn't feed the world. That's, ox- that's a that's a that's a that's our communication strategy. It's not a reality, right? So first thing that that's a c- critical fact when you start thinking strategically about. Well, the problem isn't necessarily that that the uh, the world won't be fed if big corporations go away. The problem is that we have come to believe a lie. And because we have come to believe that, we got the wrong understanding of the problem itself, right? The problem itself is that the planet is being destroyed in the name of extraction and profit, not in the name, not for the purpose of feeding people, but that's what we are communicating about. So That's a huge piece. The second big piece of data is that most of the food that we actually eat is, is either in the hands of, of in of well, it's in the hands of small farms to begin with, under 25 acres. Uh, That's the average according to the UN, right? Of this, the over 700 million farmers that produce all of that food for us. So as we think of that, most of that world is populated by uh, folks that still practice ancestral indigenous uh, ways of relating, of being, of knowing, of learning. And so most of the knowledge that we need, no, sorry, most of the wisdom that we need to uh, uh, properly articulate solutions to the current conundrum we are in with, uh, with a, a food and agriculture system that is globally dominating the planet, but yet in the name of food, it has now, now scientifically verifiably built a machinery capable of destroying the very ecology and the very foundation on which we depend to feed the world. That's the big lie out there, right? And so we're looking at this other place and realizing, wait a minute, we have all the wisdom that we need in order to actually understand and frame a solution that meets our current needs for food in the planet but also can secure the food for many, many, many generations forward. In fact, improve the conditions for others in the future to feed themselves more nutrient dense foods at the same time that we restore the ecology from which that uh, food comes from. So that is what we call the indigenous indigenous, um, technical knowledge. And so if you marry that, that wisdom and knowledge with the scientific knowledge and understanding that we have of the planet and the biophysics of the planet and all of that, then we truly have the foundation from which we can recodify both of those ends of the spectrum into strategies that deliver us an engineering process that no longer ignores the ancestral ways that that have up to now you know, because, of, because of the actions of, of native communities who still operate on indigenous principles and ways of relating and being, we have the evidence that despite tens of thousands of years of being pushed aside, and in the last five, 600 years, being colonized at such a heavy cost to society and to themselves and to the ecology, despite all of those pressures and genocide and so on, indigenous people, native peoples who continue to live on the principles of indigenous ways have preserved for us over 80% of the total biodiversity of the planet on less than 20% of the actual land-based of the planet. And that, if that is not sufficient evidence to actually say, well, we have to take all of that validate it and after validating it, reincorporating into a design that can deliver regenerative outcomes without colonizing that space so that we no longer we don't go at it again, just tapping into it for the purpose of extracting more wealth and more value, which is what the colonizing systems do. And so all of that, that framework, that way of thinking and relating, is what gives us the foundation by which we build a new code of conduct, a new code of learning, a new code of relating, of engineering, of relating among us and relating with the other living systems of the planet so that we understand them, those systems from that ancestral perspective, which in order for us to succeed at those relationships and enhancing all life on the planet, you don't have to know every single detail about it, because the way of thinking and indigenous way of thinking simply puts respect and the rule of doing no harm on top of everything you do. So when in doubt, you leave it alone. And then as you experience uh, the relationships, you actually can track and watch and document what is going on and how other species, the soil microbiology, the microbiota in your gut, you know, the health of the people, all of that is completely doc- you know, can be completely documented using modern technology. So this is what we are talking about, codifying how we do things and then codifying how you measure and analyze things using current scientific knowledge. The challenge we have today is that we are so used to using sci- the scientific knowledge and the advancements and technological advances for the purpose of extraction, that we are almost completely blinded to the ways that are going to get us out of this conundrum. And so we come into this space again, thinking that we're gonna fix all these problems with technology and because we got all this science and so on and so forth. The challenge with that, if you really look at how we have used that, is that if you look at agriculture and food, you will realize that we have generated over, according to the USDA, around 83,000 chemicals. None of those chemicals were produced or engineered by people who doesn't write or read. It's all with folks with PhDs behind the names. Now, if you think of that mass knowledge, what we have done by using that knowledge to generate all of these chemicals is that we use that knowledge to build a weapon of mass destruction, same as the atomic bomb. Now that way of using knowledge, that colonizing way of using knowledge for the purpose of extracting more resources from other populations and from folks who are, you know, in in a disadvantage on the planet, and especially in this case, the small farmers and pretty much every farmer in the in the world has been conditioned to use those chemicals, whether by policies or by well, policies that affect the economics of a country or the social relationships, we can we have forced that, that onto people. And so as we understand these things, then we can reconcile where do we use knowledge? How do we use that knowledge? How do we reconcile it with the ancestral ways that they were, never needed any of these all of these chemicals and inputs in order to, to generate conditions that transform the energy in a clean way that gave us nutrient-dense foods that we have now squandered in the name of progress. I mean, all of that has that has to be analyzed, thought through, and then based on this reconciliation, build a framework that then takes all of the stuff that matters and re-codifies it or arranges it so that we can achieve these outcomes that we are talking about, which would be regenerative. But but you gotta remember that right now, you know, as we think from your from your organization, you know, regenerative rising, regenerative rising, regenerative agriculture, regenerative recodification, what exactly does that mean? Most of the space that we are occupying right now, this this so-called regenerative movement, really doesn't understand. The found these foundational principles um, by which we deliver regenerative outcomes. Which, by the way, you know, we're still thinking that a product can be regenerative or a farm can be regenerative. And most people don't yet understand that from a scientific perspective, only ecosystems regenerate. And unless we get to that level, we will never achieve the regenerative outcomes that we all keep talking about. And that is really what we are talking about here, recodifying and literally within that process comes two things that we must do collectively. And that is decolonize the way we think and relate and the way we act so that we don't do this work for the purpose again of extraction, appropriation and for the purpose of just making money, but really keep the ultimate goal in mind and that we indigenize which means you know learning this way re- reframing how and restructuring how we learn how we relate how we um how we use knowledge and wisdom how to reconcile those forces the good and the bad they're always going to be there uh, we, our job is to indigenize our minds so that we learn how to how to balance those forces both in our own Internal ways of being, and then our collective ways, and so there is a lot of work to be done in the decolonization of methodology and science, and indigenization of our mind and our ways, so that we can then achieve that space by which we can properly codify in you know everything we know in and in, um, into a way of 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 doing agriculture into the future that will actually generate those regenerative outcomes we're talking about but we're not there yet we haven't arrived at the starting line and yet you've got all these products going on to the market being called regenerative that's that's so so um, not true it's so important that that we realize that and that those of us who are really engaged in trying to build regenerative systems that we come together so that so that not all of it gets colonized so that we still have an uh, answer that holds true and that will actually deliver the results that we need.
0: Yeah, that's um, it's a very sort of. I mean, what really stands out is the word reconcile to me because coming from here in India, um, we've also you know like every day is a is a is a sort of a reminder of what colonization does, and and then you talk about regeneration, and it's it's such a buzzword today. And it's as if it's a new discovery. And actually, it's just I love the word that, that you're using reconcile because at the end of the day, indigenous societies, whatever they've been doing, what nature by default is, is regenerative. Um, and uh the very predatory system that we're now part of, which is um essentially what essentially has destroyed the connect between With your own past, right? With your own ancestry, with your own wisdom, making people doubt what they already know and embrace things that are, for most farmers who grew up as farmers, almost against their gut. But the system is so powerfully giving this information that uh, oftentimes uh, that's now become the norm. So the word reconciliation is very, very potent. Um, but I want to just uh, explore a bit more about um, the community aspects and what really happens at the grassroots in terms of social and economic impact of introducing or reintroducing or reconciling with the original indigenous systems of uh, agriculture, specifically, let's say, specifically with poultry uh, poultry farming.
1: Right. So <clears throat> from a codification perspective, as, as we mentioned before, the um, in this process, we ask some fundamental questions. For example, if we were to look at, at how poultry can be regenerative, how pork can be regenerative, how cows can be regenerative, the first thing you have to understand is that every species on the planet Has a geo-evolutionary blueprint that currently is defined by, but is the that is that defines its current state. Meaning, every species has a, a, a habitat on which it evolved, and that habitat is the place where that species thrives and can express itself to the fullest extent that its evolutionary process allows it allows it. And that is the same for a bacteria, a virus, us as people, for a chicken, for a cow, or a worm on the ground. It doesn't matter, a plant. If there is this set of conditions that if met, optimizes the expression of that organism. Artificially, it's very difficult to achieve that. It can only be achieved by working within that ancestral habitat of the species. And the challenge with that is that when you look at the world that way, basically I'm asking that when we think of a species, whether it is a plant we are planting or an animal we are trying to work with, that we, we look at the world from their perspective. So from the perspective of the chicken, they evolved in, 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 its, in the jungles of Southeast Asia primarily, and they are primarily a jungle fowl. So <clears throat> when you start from that perspective, then you got to understand that in order to affect the economics of any species, you have to be able to see the world from their perspective to it. So from a codification perspective, you have to look at the economic, the social, and the ecological, I mean, those three aspects are already codified into our language anyway. So, but if you look at the landscape from the perspective of the chicken, you restore it to the closest potential modern expression of that ancestral habitat. And then you have an optimization of the economics, the ecological, and potentially the social, because that is the way most farmers operate. They, they got integrated systems anyway. So we just kind of rearrange those factors to build that modern expression of that poultry, of that chicken habitat. So literally the optimization of economics, it really isn't about money. It's um the, in order to generate the, the, the closest, the most efficient flow of the economic aspect of any farming operation, you have to optimize the ecological. Because when you optimize the ecological, then you are engaging in, in the stewardship of energy transformation processes. And the currency of en- the currency of any farming operation is energy. And it just happens that because of that, the, the systems that are that colonized our planet, they, they really quickly tapped into that fact and then started to remove that energy into an artificial flow so they could tap into the economics of the farmers across the world. And so if you look at where we spend money on a farm, it is on energy. And if you look at why a farmer isn't uh, it, a lot of times isn't profitable, it's not because people are not buying their product is because they are spending all of their income on inputs. And so fundamentally you hack the economics of any system when you start looking at it from a regenerative perspective because regenerative systems do not require outside inputs. It's all inputs from the ecosystem itself, not the farm, again, to be clear. A farm may be bringing inputs from another part of the ecosystem, but the ecosystem as a whole is completely self-contained. And here where I am right now, we're thinking of the e- our ecosystem as the Mississippi River ecosystem. So it starts in New Orleans, all the way up to ITASCA, Minnesota, where the origin of the, of the river is. And that ecosystem can be completely, completely enclosed. And so as an ecosystem, it doesn't need inputs from outside. Now, each farm within that ecosystem may need some inputs from another part of the ecosystem. For example, a farmer in in our poultry system who only has enough land to raise the poultry, even though that farmer may be raising it in in the natural habitat of the chicken, out free ranging under trees, trees that are native that we selected according to the criteria and so on and so forth. But if that farmer only has say 15 acres, we're going to need a partner farmer who is growing grains, who then uses all of the manure from the poultry uh, from the poultry coops where the chickens sleep at night. That manure then goes to the farmer who's growing grain. And then the farmer who's too small to grow grains brings the grain in from the farmer doing the grains. And so you start now codifying the relationships, not only of the chicken and the space around it, and the families raising those chickens but the those family those families with other families and then and then as we do that we start building you know in this case bringing back native species from this ecosystem which then builds habitats for migratory birds restores the 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 root systems into the into the into the ground so that the water is not being polluted eliminating the input so that there is no excess energy being leached into the groundwater or surface water and optimizing the carbon sequestration of that space so that we put more carbon in the soil, uh, not for the purpose of carbon sequestration as the traditional colonizing system is, is doing right now, tapping into carbon as another way to extract wealth out of communities, but rather carbon as the currency of the biophysics and chemistry uh, of the soil so that more energy can be transformed on that same space and so on and so forth. That is how we codify economics. It isn't about just the money because it is it's, it's all interconnected. If you if you mess with the ecology, then you're gonna pay the price in actual real money. And so the the whole concept of of thinking of the of the econ- economies of the farm and the farming system, starts by looking at how we are managing the ecology as the foundational landscape on which that energy transformation is going to happen and energy as the currency of farming which when disrupted costs us tremendous amount of the hard-earned income any operation on the planet wow
0: it's um every time you describe something or when you're speaking it's what really really stands out to me is how interwoven the system is right like from it's 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 not singular it is not isolated and it's it's just beautifully coming together and uh, the complexity yet the simplicity is is really uh really profound um yeah so I just wanted to uh, ask like that. It's I find it, this this power of uh, being able to work in different contexts. And as you were saying, um, the chicken is something that is almost universal in this uh, uh, in this planet as a, a food, uh, or actually not just as a food, as as a part of life in most cultures. It's part of life, um, and uh, it's you're working into at least two. I think more, but two very diverse contexts one um in the in the US and then also in Guatemala and these are vastly different socioeconomic contexts at least on paper um and i am someone who cares uh very deeply about multidirectional knowledge flow because that which again reverts back to colonization which is decided that there's only one type of science there's only one type of truth and there's only one and it, it's very Always information or on what is the best thing to do flows from uh the, the economically developed global north to the global south. So I find this the very powerful and empowering that this reverse flow of information or the multidirectional flow of information from uh indigenous communities um from, from different parts of the world, and you're also working in the US. Um so in a way, disrupting this colonization. Right, so, but I'm wondering how do the adaptation and responses in these two uh, regions differ when you introduce uh, this codified framework of regenerative poultry farming? Is there any marked sort of uh, uh, difference in the way the context uh, responds to uh, your system when you introduce it or
1: in practice? Yeah, no, I mean, you nailed it. This this is a very important aspect because unfortunately, we, well, let's put it this way. There's multiple responses depending on where you're going. So if I go to a traditional conventional corn and soybean farmer in the Midwest of the U.S., the response is always like this rolling of the eyes and this like smile and People just sometimes politely just walking away or just just you know impolitely just um just saying some sort of swear word and and moving on, right? <laughs> that is I am used to that and I know not to go into those spaces. Um and or be do it very carefully or go into those spaces with somebody who's really highly respected who's not going to be questioned so people may frown like go like huh seriously and so and so believes this well there must be something to it but it's not a space where we put a lot of energy because why i mean it's a spinning wheel we're going to be pushing against a massive wall and there's no point in doing that because on right next to it there is another population of really capable um but landless uh, and resource, under-resourced population that is in the in the tens of millions, mostly um, uh, new immigrants and um, families that come from from um, from established migra- migratory communities in the U.S. that provide labor to the food and agriculture system, and yet they themselves go home poor and hungry because of the labor conditions in the food industry, but whom up to 70%, you know, 60 to 70% based on some, uh, you know, preliminary research we did at churches and places where we had people raise their hands if they were interested in agriculture, if they knew how to farm and things like that. Anyway, we figured that it's over 50%, no matter what, anywhere where you go, of people in those conditions who are ready to farm, but have no access to land, capital, and, you know, structured processes by which they can enter an agricultural landscape. So as we codified the system, we realized, well, these folks are already there and ready, and there is no resistance whatsoever. All we have to do is put the pieces together, and they embrace it, and they run with it. So that was one thing. Here in the US. So, two responses already there that are massively opposite to each other. And then, when I started uh, visiting Native communities across the Midwest, I realized that they already understood this intrinsically. Just we had a conversation, they were like, oh, yeah, 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 that makes sense. No resistance whatsoever. And some of them have access to land and resources. And so, we started uh, identifying those communities so that we could go and start working with them. And that's how we established the operation in Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, uh, most recently in the Winnebago Nation in uh, Nebraska. And then you have the other communities like in Guatemala and Mexico, where most of our farmland is still managed by small farms. And small farms, uh, small farmers still hold a lot of the ancestral understanding of things, even as they are conditioned To do monocropping and things like that they in their heart they know it is wrong it's just nobody brings them a, a fully designed system that can give them the confidence that making the switch won't interfere with their very short um uh cash flow and living and living processes that they have in place because you know the corn comes out, saying highlands of Kormala. The corn comes out. You hold the corn. You're gonna eat the beans. You're gonna eat the food. You're gonna eat. You got very little to sell. That's all, the only cash you're gonna get. It's all you know. It's so tight that you are running on this very short cash flow cycle. To change that is impossible without some sort of transitioning strategy. And so we were able to codify the process by which you raise chickens under this system into the already existing practices. Once we brought it out in Guatemala, four regions almost simultaneously came in and started adopting the system with a partner organization in Guatemala. And the, the challenge wasn't them accepting it or wanting to do this. The challenge was figuring out how could we do it at a large scale right from the beginning. And then in Mexico, we partnered with an organization that then brought the system, deployed it as a training facility, and now they are, they are using it to train a lot of farmers and, new, and students from universities uh, so that they can go back. And this becomes more of the norm rather than this new thing. And as we become more of the norm, then those reactions are, are, are starting to change. And and a lot of the conventional farmers are now starting into coming into this space because you know just because you have a say a three thousand acre farm in the middle of Minnesota uh, doesn't mean you are doing well because the system has this very uh, very well fine tuned machinery where and, and systems where if you are doing better as a farmer it increases the input. The cost of inputs and other other services, so that at the end of the day, you're still depending on government payments in order to make it. it. Doesn't matter how much corn or soybeans you may grow, farmers don't like that. They live with it, but it it is not an honorable system. And and we farmers, we are proud of what we do. We don't want handouts and 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 you know welfare from the government. That's not what what gives us. The sense of satisfaction as farmers, and so that you know, even though it's a little bit, you know, covered and you know, masquerade by a lot of other attitudes, and sometimes just, um, just basically, you know, basically ignoring the issue and pretending that you are out there a successful farmer. What happens is that deep inside, those farmers also would like to change. The challenge is if they, they may not be in the same conditions as the tiny, small, you know, two acre or one and a half, two hectare farm in Guatemala, they also want to change different conditions, social and economic. But it doesn't matter that these other farmers here in the Midwest got two, 3,000 acres. If it comes down to what's deep inside, they also wish they didn't have to destroy the planet and to go around in this. Permanent loop where they can't get out of the conventional system. All of all of them, if not you know, if not most of them, um, are in that space where change that you feel, you know, you got to change, but you got no option because the system already got you trapped in this spinning wheel. And so, if we can codify a pathway, and as we have started to do that here in the Midwest. A pathway for those farmers to start moving away from that conventional system, we are now starting to get a response because we're not asking them. Just like in Guatemala, we codified the poultry into the existing small farm operations, mostly because they already had, say, avocados for shade and then coffee on the bottom and then corn next to it, but the corn plots were small enough that we could put the chickens under the corn, and that gave them a habitat with protection from predators and from shape, you know, shade from the sun and all of that, corn, it will do it. Uh, and then we we started codifying the, 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 the integration of perennial crops into where they had the corn, which was much easier because it was just a few trees, it was not a big deal. Well, in the Midwest, if you look at a farm, a large-scale farm that's doing corn and soybeans, and at least they're willing to do the, to, to eliminate chemicals, the toxic chemicals, out of their operation, we can actually work with them to continue to grow corn and soybeans. Now with the incorporation of, say, a row of perennial crops every 80 feet or, or 120 feet, so that they can have three or four passes of a combine in between those rows. And by, by bringing in natural, natural nutrition to the soil, eliminate the chemical inputs, so that we can actually have a output from their farm that we can feel is is still regenerating so that that corn and that soybean can be put into our poultry system because our poultry, to be regenerative, our poultry has to be integrated all the way back to supply chain for it won't make any difference to raise chickens the way we do if the if the grain that we are putting into their food is destroying the planet anyway. And so this is now starting to become a whole new story for our relationship with those farmers who just five years ago, who probably looked at us and just gone like, dude, just just go on somewhere else, right? So, <laughs> so very interesting dynamics. I think the social economical aspects of this are critical for us to understand. You nailed, it. it's not the same, but yet it is the same because at the end of the day, We either heal the planet all across the board, no matter what, or we're not going to have a planet to produce the food that we need. For we are now verifiably, scientifically able and totally on the path of destroying the very ecology on which we depend to feed the world. And yet we're doing it in the name of feeding the world. And that, I think, is now sinking in on everyone's minds.
0: On that note, you're tuned in to Regenerative Rising's podcast, Elevating Stories, Activating Change. I am your host, Nisha Mary Paulos, Executive Director of Regenerative Rising, and with me today is Reginaldo haslett Marikin, Founder and Co-Director of Regenerative Agriculture Alliance. So this has been so eye-opening in a very simple way. To me, regenerative is when one small action beautifully fits into everything else. And when one solution just leads to more and more completedness. Um, and and the way complexity is just created with with ease and a very wholesome trail is left behind with every action. Um, and what we was speaking of a very a small bird that is so powerful that it's it can it can coexist with food forests, it can revive the ecology, it can revive community and livelihoods, and it leads to ample food supply. But I'm wondering what are some of the big lessons? It's been it's been twelve twelve years or, or more, right? Since 1988, you've been doing this. Um, and it's been it's been decades that you've been farming and working with both soil and the people. What are some of the big uh, turning points uh, in your journey if you'd like to share that? Yeah,
1: well, the first one was being able to build a team that was willing to relearn and retrain. And I in, in included myself, always continuously relearning and retraining my own mind and, and, and our and acquiring the indigenous intellect that we need in order to look through these processes with integrity. So that happened in 2019, started to happen in 2019. Before that, it was just, bouncing all over the place. We, I really was having a hard time finding the right people to work with. And then since then, regenerative has become a lot more of a buzzword and a lot more people exploring this. And so as that happened, that that also turned around. In in 2015, I was part of founding Regeneration International in, out of Costa Rica. And since 2015, if you look at how regenerative the conversations and the word became very, very popular. I mean, became a buzzword. In other words, also it allowed us to to find a lot more people who are willing to engage with integrity in this space, and so that that was an incredible turning point. Both the founding of Regeneration International, and then being able to to gather a lot of information on who was doing what across the world, and um, being able to bring in uh, a team together in 2018 and 2019. And then uh, the actual operations didn't start until 2020 when we when we bought a, uh, a poultry processing facility in Iowa. Uh, up to that point, we had been just training people. And yes, I have been farming this way for a long time and I have the original uh, prototype production units and all of that, but we, we kind of had to wait until that point in order to move into the deployment stage. And right now, one of the next you know, things that is happening is the launch of tree range farms. So the codification of the process by, to raise chickens was one thing. The codification of the, of the um, business ecosystem was something completely different. And for that, we didn't need a team but a network of teams engaged on multiple parts of the Rajanta poultry ecosystem. One of them is the nonprofit, which is what we started, so that we could build a team to provide access to training, technical assistance, farmer organizing, governance infrastructure, ownership and control training so that we people understood that part, access to land. I mean, you name it. Everything we could do in terms of support, we put it on the nonprofit. And then um, the farms, each farm operates their own operations as part of a synchronized, a standardized system. We needed infrastructure in place, both physical and institutional. And we kind of accomplished a great deal in, the, in 2019 and 2020 in that space. And then in 2021, we started developing the process for launching the company that is going to do contracting, distribution, marketing, and branding. And so now, as as we come to the end of 2022, we are launching Tree Range Farms, which is the company that will oversee that. And this is another massive turning point for the ecosystem. So, yeah, I mean, those are like top highlights of the process. And in between, there is a lot of incredible, incredible innovations. Like the way we raise the chickens, we have been able to find some really interesting um Points of improvement, which we'll leave for another conversation. <laughs> yeah.
0: Thank you. Um, what else is Regenerative Agriculture Alliance anticipating in the years to come? Are you building towards anything that you're uh, excited to share? I mean, you did say tree range farms, but uh, anything else? Any um, anything else that you're really looking forward to?
1: Yeah. Well, when we started all of this. Um, there is there's a saying in Guatemala, you know, if you don't know where you're going, every bus takes you there. And so from the beginning, we knew we were not gonna set up a poultry system that uses industrial breeds. Even if they worked in our system, the challenge is that ownership of the supply chain is too critical. And so to enter a system where we just feed the beasts, so to speak, by by using its own its own systems, it even though it could mechanically work and we could do it, the challenge is that is that the system doesn't change at the end of the day, and if the system doesn't change, we're back on the spinning wheel again. And so we we realize okay, we know where we're going. We want a system that is actually re, redesigned all the way through, so that the outcome is actually regenerative, not just. A little bit you know you can't do this just a little bit so yes we know exactly what our destination is and within that context at the Regenta Biocultural Alliance we are the next big thing is going to be the building of a national um governing body the, the Regent Poultry Council of America hopefully and this is where Rejanta Rising and many other institutions that have this level of integrity Um, We are planning to invite everyone into one aspect of the whole system where if we properly codify poultry and move it into the large scale markets, we can actually recodify the process by which you do redo a lot of other sectors. And we don't have to, to do that. Basically, understanding that systems change requires that you have one entry point which has the largest potential ripple impact. And if you succeed at that, you ripple sufficiently to change the system. That's our theory, foundational theory of change. And now that we are in a space where we can start doing that, we are going to embark in that next level of scalability without, we, and also understanding that everything and everybody have to rise uh, uh, together. That is what makes a regenerative, uh, a, a, an uprising regenerative is when nobody gets left behind. And that comes out of the opening line of our Mayan sacred book, the Pop Wu, which starts by saying that no one, that everybody will rise, that no one will be left behind. So technically the, the, the code of regeneration and the regenerative rising is already encoded into our ancestral books. And that to us is, is sacred instructions that if we ignore, then any bus will take us there because we won't know where we're going.
0: Wow, that's so exciting, Reggie. I'm really looking forward to, uh, for this on on you know on behalf of myself, the world, and just it's just exciting that that kind of scalability is on your mind and you're working towards that. And it's, it's just really just good news for the world. Um, so as we're coming to a close, Uh, On a more personal note, uh, you did share some more, but I wanted to ask if um, there are any indigenous words of wisdom from your Guatemalan heritage, a proverb or a short story or something that you rely on uh, in the context of regeneration and all the work that you do that you'd like to to share.
1: Sure. Um, we, We have to understand that one, we're not individuals. We ourselves are an ecosystem. We are an ecosystem that is formed by bacteria, fungi, viruses, cells, muscle tissue, eyes, everything. Everything, when you really look at who we are, we are an ecosystem, not individuals. And so to the extent that we are an ecosystem, we are the perfect reflection of the planet's design as an ecosystem. It's got its own expressions, uh, just like we do. And so the, the the idea that what we do to, to the planet, we do it unto ourselves is so real. And so the planet and the health of the planet and our health is really a reflection, it's a mirror of each other. And when we ignore that fundamental fact of our species as a one, as one of the living ecosystems or systems on the planet. Uh, When we ignore those facts, then we tend to think that we can do anything we want without consequences. And that is one thing that all of the ancestral indigenous peoples always understood and we had a reverence, we have a reverence for those magnificent forces and that magnificent design that allows us to wake up every morning and to be in awe of our own existence The fact that we are an ecosystem and yet we don't fall apart. And as we start falling apart, that level of consciousness that shows us that we fall apart if the planet falls apart. And when we realize those things, then we can actually wake up to our own indigenous intellect and our own understanding of what is going on and then pursue the proper routes to the solutions rather than getting distracted by the noise of the world those are those are not my words. I learned that from multiple sources of people who have mentored me in this process and um, it's what drives me every day I don't I don't need any more inspiration it is all right there with our ancestors who whose energy we breathe every day and exhale every day and that nurtures us for we are not, not only individuals, we are ecosystems, but we are also simply expressions of energy. It's energy that comes through our food and the air we breathe and the interactions with the rest of the, of the elements of, of the planet. And so we are simply allowed to be here as expressions of that energy, which will then transform itself into something else once we're done and will become energy that will give life to other organisms and as long as we understand those things and we can codify that way of living knowing and relating into our daily lives we will start healing and we will heal the planet
0: wow thank you that was really beautiful and inspiring these ancient bits of wisdom it gives gives me so much hope and you know a sense of calm that that it's already been figured out in a way. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, and with that, we come to the end of today's podcast. Reggie, thank you so much for being such a wonderful guest and this, and you're a treasure trove of information on what it takes to be regenerative and what it takes to be human as a part of this planet. Thank you. Uh, thank
1: you. And good luck in your new position there and all the work there that you will be doing. I can't wait.
0: Thank you. And same, really excited for what is awaiting uh, Regenerative Agriculture Alliance. Thank you you for joining us for Regenerative Rising's podcast, Elevating Stories, Activating Change. I am your host, Nisha Mary Paulos, Executive Director of Regenerative Rising. And with me today is Reginaldo Haslett-Moroccan, founder and co-director of Regenerative Agriculture Alliance.